0: If you need translation, that is the code, X-Q-E-G-H. I hope you know how to do that if you're using the Microsoft Translator app and you don't know how to use that or don't understand anything I am saying right now. (laughs) Then somebody around you, I am certain, can help because everybody here, I think, knows how to use that. We've been trained in it. Uh, and we'll probably keep reminding ourselves how to do that moving forward, because it really is an outworking of our vision uh, as well. It's important for us that you get to hear God's word declared in your own language. I know it's not perfect, but hopefully it is helpful in many respects. So let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 3.6. I'm going to read that text for us, and then we'll look at it together. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 36. That's a lot of numbers that are happening there, but you can certainly follow along as well on the screen. Or you can grab your Bible and look it up as well. I certainly encourage that. So let's read, read this. And here we find, starting in verse 12, Paul says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. Is that on the screen? I don't know if it's... Is it, it's not, not there at all. Nothing. Are there PowerPoint sermon slides? None. Really. Okay. That's, that's, that's really unfortunate. I... So I encourage you to follow along in your Bible. I think that's a really good idea. Hopefully the main points are obvious and the really cool animations are just not going to happen. So here it is. Let me begin again. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many... We do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life." This is the Word of God. So we've already seen in the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 1 that God is the God of all comfort. He's the source of any comfort that you might experience. And then we saw that he is the God of all faithfulness. Everything is yes in Christ. And this morning we see that he's actually the God of all transformation. He's the God of all change. And that is the highlight and the focus that Paul has here. And it's a bit of a transition uh, here between two, two ways that Paul is headed. He's, beginning, he's continuing to explain good news. Animation city. Bam. And bam. So we got it. It's probably less exciting than I made it sound out to be. But still, I mean, poof, there it is. It's pretty awesome. So we're going to see here, Paul, and you already got a little there. So Paul, Paul is talking about why he's made some change in plans, and then he's kind of bridging to a new section where for a while he talks about the nature of the ministry that he's doing. But there certainly is a connection between these two as well, as we will see. And so the way that we're tying that together is to look at Christ as the author of change. There are a lot of great self-help programs out there, but what Paul comes to realize when when he encounters Christ, what Paul comes to realize is that real, lasting change, eternal change, can only come from Christ. You can do some things, you can shed some pounds, you can change your way of thinking, and there is some progress, but if you want the kind of change that's a wholesale change... That, Paul says, can only come from Christ. And he says that in a couple of ways here as well. And as you may have already glimpsed in the first amazing animation, is that Christ is the author of a changed perspective. And he's talking to these people, if you recall, the Corinthian church... They've had some tough times. He's written a hard letter to them. He's tried to visit them. Other people have come in and started doubting whether they should even listen to Paul. So part of what he's doing is offering a defense of his ministry. But, but a big piece of that is his own changed life. And his, as he says, the fact that their lives have been changed as well. And so he says Christ is the author of a changed perspective. And in what sort of ways? First, he talks about a changed identity. And that is something that's talked about a lot these days. Who am I? How do I identify? I identify as fill in the blank, whatever you want to fill in the blank as. For Paul, he said from the beginning, he's a servant of God and a servant of Christ. In fact, one of his favorite ways to describe himself is doulos, as many of you know. And doulos would be something that means servant or slave. And in the culture of that day, somebody then would would actually come under the authority of somebody else and do that person's bidding. And Paul says that's who he is to Christ. Christ is his master and he serves Christ. And Christ alone. That is... That changed when he met Christ and he encountered him. He said, now I am no longer serving my own interests, but I'm serving Christ. And so he uses that phrase a lot. And and there's a connection here because the imagery that he has when he's talking to these Corinthians, and he's talking about the gospel of Christ that he'd been preaching. In verse 14, he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. And this, most commentators uh, look back to the Roman practice when there was a, a battle and they would conquer somebody. They would come back to the, the city and they would lead a train of the captives behind them. So here's the person out in front who's leading the way, he's the conqueror. And the, the evidence that they've conquered are the people who are coming behind him. And all, the, all this train uh, behind them would be now their servants because they've overcome them. And strangely, perhaps, when you read this text, you might think this picture is of we're up there with Christ as conquerors, but actually Paul sees himself as one of the captives. Christ is leading this procession. He's the conqueror. And back behind him are all the servants. And Paul is one of them. And Paul says that is for him a good thing because we all serve somebody we all have a master. We all have a king. It could be yourself. You know you don't make a very good one. If you have read Psalm 32, as we did earlier, you know how that ends. It's, going, it's never going to work, not properly, because you were designed to have only one master, and that is Christ. And so Paul knows this. He says he was taken in by Christ. He is my king. So here's this picture he has to this Corinthian church of God leading through in Christ a triumphal procession and he's the servant so this is just a complete mind change what is my life all about who am I for Paul he says my entire way of looking at life is Christ is my king I am his captive and for him he says that's the biggest victory of all and he has this beautiful image then of Christ leading this procession in and he is the captive or the servant, an identity shift. And and because he's thinking about that, he realizes, well, I have a different perspective on the results. Because what Paul has been called to do is to live out the gospel, as we all have. I mean, Paul lived at a certain time, had a specific role, but so do you. We've seen, I, I love Acts 17. Each one of you is here in this exact place at this moment, but even where you live by God's design. And it's no mistake whether you like it or not. So you embrace it, and if you have an idea that I am a servant of Christ, he's got you here for a moment to do something. Part of that is to live out the gospel. As we'll see soon, you're a letter, and people are reading you all around, and certainly if you identify as a servant of Christ, then they're they're looking at you and thinking, hmm, that's what a servant of Christ is like. But the other part of that is, as you serve and we did this evangelism training you have a burden for those around you you're praying for open doors that's what Paul just said here I, I went to Troas to preach the gospel and the Lord had opened a door and so when he starts thinking about how do I live out in the gospel one of the fears that we can have and we sing about fear is I don't know how the response is going to be and it's understandable because he says as you deliver that good news To some, it's going to seem like life. To others, the smell of death. And if somebody smells death, they probably don't like that. They're going to to run away. I mean, we tend not to enjoy that. So there is an inherent reality that when you are true and faithful with your living of the gospel, to some, some are going to reply and hear life and others hear judgment and condemnation. And Paul says that's that's part of my perspective. My task is, is to share the gospel and the results are left to God's Holy Spirit. And so we have to go in knowing, but it's a changed perspective. I can be free to share that and God's in charge of the results. And then he says also, there's a changed motive in verse 17. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. In the church, and this is often the case, uh, some, sometimes there are people who find a certain measure of success and there's oftentimes a perspective on the church that all the church wants is money because they're not concerned about with hearts of people but just, can I get some money in my pockets? And there are lots of ministries, and some of you probably know them too, that are focused very much on that reality, a whole wing of theology, you know, prosperity is the end game, which doesn't seem always to square with what Paul says even here too. I'm a captive, and Christ says, lay down your life. And so here he says, my motive though, he's trying to argue that although these other people come in and, and, and they maybe only care about bottom line, we don't. In, on the contrary, in Christ, we speak with sincerity. That's a changed motive. And all of this is driving to the next section because the, the, the gospel is is not primarily concerned with external realities, but internal ones. Because God has made our hearts in such a way that when our hearts are changed, the external stuff will come. That's what God's after. This is what Christ came and said over and over again. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't lust after a woman. In your heart, because you can obey that on the outside, but something's happening on the inside that drives you to Psalm 32. You're still guilty before God. So we need to do some internal work. You guys know what that's like. Extrinsic motivation versus intrinsic motivation. Extrinsic motivation for kids with homework. If you don't do your homework, we will take your phone away from you (laughs) if they don't want to work. That's extrinsic motivation, okay? Or we'll do something else. Maybe we'll withhold dessert from you. I don't know. Intrinsic motivation is what every parent wants. If I tell you do your homework, you have an internal desire, perhaps just to obey your parents, so you do it, even if you don't want to because internally, you know, I want to please my parents. It can be a negative thing over time, or, or I just want to, to do the right thing. You're intrinsically motivated. So how do you get from the extrinsic to the intrinsic? What I've tried to say from the beginning is the only real, true, lasting way for that to happen is for Christ to get a hold of your heart and to completely change it. That's it. Otherwise, we're just talking about extrinsic realities. And where the church often can go wrong is just be concerned about the extrinsic stuff. You look good, you obey, awesome. But Christ comes and says, I'm doing something new. It was back there in the Old Testament, as we'll see, but in in, in a more external form. And I think even in the Old Testament, I would argue, God's getting to the heart, but it came most clearly in the person of Christ when he ushered in something completely new called the New Covenant and said, this is what it's been about from the beginning. Because if you look back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it was all about what's happening in the heart there to begin with. You've heard it said maybe if you tell a child to sit down, they might sit down, but they could still be standing in their heart. (laughs) Right? I mean, it's true for all of us. So what we're driving to is internal, lasting change. And Paul starts saying in this next section, Christ is not just the author of a changed perspective, but furthermore, he's the author of changed lives and changed hearts. And and literally, he says, he is the author. And look at verse 3. You are a letter. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You are a letter. Who's the one who's authored that letter? From Christ. You are that letter. And, And he, this is, you could do, a Trinitarian doctoral thesis on this passage too. I mean, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all involved in this process. And sometimes there's interchangeable language being used here too. But in this verse we just looked at, you are a letter from Christ. You get a letter in the mail, who's it from? The person who wrote it to you. And you're a letter from Christ. He's the author of your changed life and your changed heart in concert with God who is created and the spirit who he leaves behind to continue that transformation to make new life together. This is like a comparison and contrast essay. If you remember high school or college or something, compare and contrast (laughs) the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. Paul starts doing that here. Look look what he does. You're a letter from Christ, the result of the ministry written, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And then in verse 6, he's made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So here's this comparison and contrast here, and we see it in other places in scripture as well. But there's the old covenant and the new covenant. Comparison and contrast in these verses. According to Paul, the old covenant was written on tablets of stone and is of the letter, which ultimately kills. Yet the new covenant, tablets of human hearts, and it's of the Spirit who gives life. Some of you remember, just in case you can't picture it, that this, in this old covenant we have the Ten Commandments that were delivered and were written on tablets of stone, you know, they're chiseled in there by God. And Moses comes down, uh, Charlton Heston, for some of you, with, with, uh, with tablets of stone and, and says, here are the ways you're supposed to live to, to please God. And, and that, was, that was, those are external realities. And, and of course, they're driving to the heart, even the first one. We all worship something. You should just worship God. But they, they, they tended to make that an external only Reality, That's, that was the nature of the Old Covenant and the law, which is do this or don't do that. That's the law. And we've already given a little picture of what that looks like. You know, we, we know we should have some obedience. Even, even people who don't believe in God. I remember playing basketball with somebody years ago who was an atheist. And we would, you know, play parallel play as guys do, you know, golf or basketball or whatever the case may be, and we would talk, and he knew I was a pastor, and um, he said, I don't believe in God, and he had all these reasons, and I said, okay, well, here's, you know, why I, why I do, and just casual conversation. Um, and then he got into a relationship with somebody, and the person was pregnant, and he was going to have a child, and he said, I'm going to send my child to church. I said, Why? <laughs> (laughs) I mean, you told me you don't even believe in God. I'm curious, like, why would you send them? Because I want them to do the right thing, (laughs) right? I mean, he wants them to be exposed to some morals, and that kind of thing. I'm like, that feels inconsistent A, 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 a little bit, but but I get it because you get, you want your kids to be in a place where they, that's that's morality, which we all have a sense of, I would argue, even this guy who denies God. He wants his kids to be good kids. Well, what is good? Now we're thinking philosophically. (laughs) Jesus did the same thing. I mean, who's making up these rules? But we get the idea that there's something good about it. But that's just law, right? You just send somebody and they get information. and, And you think that they have the power to do the right thing. You want them to. There's good things about that. But what gives energy to that? The law in and of itself can never save you. It will only lead to destruction, well, I think one of the greatest pictures of that is Les Mis. And I, I like the, the the version with Liam Neeson and Uma Thurman, if you are unfamiliar with that story. But there's, there's this guy who steals a loaf of bread, and he's punished severely. And the guy who's executing that punishment is Javert. right? And he's just, you've broken the law, you will pay for the consequences. They're ridiculous consequences, hard labor for this guy, for stealing a loaf of bread to save one of his family members' lives. He finally leaves, if you remember this storyline, and, uh, and he's got a, a little thing that identifies him as a thief, so nobody will take him in. So he's free, but not really, because the law says you're condemned. And the only person who takes him in is a priest in a local town. The wife of the priest isn't so excited about this guy coming into their house, and in fact, in the middle of the night, he steals some of their fine uh, items that they had, too, because he has no hope of otherwise sustaining his existence. Well, the police find him, bring him back to the, uh, to the, to the, to the priest, and they say, This man has stolen your stuff. And if you know the story, the priest says, Oh, why didn't you take more? Here you go, take more. And and the police say, okay, I guess you gave it to him, even though he's got a big, you know, he's been hit in the head by this guy who stole the stuff from him too. And the priest says, effectively, I bought your life because I've paid for some. I I paid the price. I took it on, and I've given you more. Now go and do likewise. Right? It's that John eight picture of the woman who's brought with whoever's got no sin cast the first stone and there's no one left to condemn. And he says, now go and live a life of no sin. And that's a similar thing that's happening in that storyline. As, as, as the story goes on, Jean Valjean, who's kind of been redeemed, uh, he's had an internal change and now he starts giving to others in a way he couldn't before because he's been bought with a price. In the meantime, the guy who's the law Javert ends up in the same city as where where this guy is uh, the mayor and kind of spoiler alert type stuff going on here too because at the end of the story the guy who is the law how does that end does anybody remember what does he do he commits suicide because to the end Jean Valjean shows him grace continues to to rescue and even though this man deserves punishment, Jean Valjean forgives him, but he is the law and he cannot forgive. He's unyielding, unbending, and that ends ultimately in death. Maybe not that dramatic, but some form of death. And so here's a picture, I think it's a beautiful picture, of what it looks like to encounter the grace of God in the gospel, have a heart that's made new that leads to transformation, but everything else is just a self-improvement program. And at the end of the day, it does not work. That's what the gospel says, anyway. And when the new covenant comes, and we see that it's not tablets of stone that have been written on to say what you should do, it's your very heart. And the heart, in the Hebrew idea, is the controlling center of your entire life. The main part of who you are has been radically transformed, and you cannot do it. You're dead in sin. So you need somebody who has the power to raise the dead to do it. And how does Paul begin this entire book? In our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we may not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So he's continuing to say it. If you have any hope at all for change, it has to be in Christ, whose resurrection shows that he is the one who can change our hearts as well. So no wonder when we do the Lord's Supper, we say Christ took the the cup and he said this is this cup is the new covenant it's the new covenant in my blood shed for many for forgiveness of sins you can't do it on your own he's the one who paid the price he has redeemed us he ushered in the new covenant and that inward transformation can happen but only through christ now the old testament anticipated this as well jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33 This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And again, in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 36, verses 26 to 27, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So now the laws of God becomes a delight to fill, Not just a duty. We are duty bound. We have an obligation to serve Christ as our king. We are his captives, but also a delight because we know that this is a good thing for us. Now, and the only way that you can be convinced it's a good thing is if you actually believe it's a good thing. And the only way you can believe it is if he has won your heart. And the only way that can happen is he changes it. So if all this sounds like that sounds good, but I don't really, I'm not moved internally by any of this stuff. It could be that your heart needs to be renewed by God's spirit. So why not ask him? Say, God, I'm, this isn't doing anything. This isn't landing. So say, God, do something in my heart if that's what you want. And I think you should want that because this is the way to life. If what the Bible says is true, all other alternatives lead to death ultimately. And for Paul, that was so central. He was willing to lay his own life down for it. We've already seen some of these practical realities that come from this, but just a a few thoughts about what this means in terms of so what. Uh, One of the things that we need to consider is that our lives are read like letters. That is... We are to be changed in such a way that it can be read and seen. So there's a a bit of a burden that you have if you remember I said what you identify as. If you identify as a Christian or a follower of Christ, then Paul says your life you're, you're like a letter. Now he was using it to commend people in that day needed letters of recommendation to say, hey, you can listen to this person. It's like a reference. But he's kind of turning it around and saying, you're you're my letter. You're my reference. Because your life has been transformed. That's what he's presuming. People look at you and see there's a change. The ministry of his result. You're the results of his ministry. Now we know Christ has authored it and the Holy Spirit is using it, but nonetheless, he says, you're my letters. Which presumes that you too, if you know Christ and have been changed, are a letter. Being read it doesn't mean thankfully that you have to be completely perfect in all that you do, because then you 'd be living like the law again too, and just externally driven. It does mean I think though that when you when you move forward and you 're aware of the fact that you 've made some sort of a mistake, the way you respond to it is maybe even more powerful than the mistake itself that 's what Psalm 32 was all about I confessed my sin I acknowledged it and I'm changing my ways. so we're not called in this sense remember we're called saints at the very beginning and and that's because in Christ we are seen as, as holy but it's a messy group of people we saw in 1 Corinthians there's some bad stuff going on here how can they be saints well they're in Christ but you are not to remain that way We're on this process of receiving more grace for the journey, and the journey is not to becoming less like Christ, it's to becoming more like Christ. So if you began by relying on him to change, you need to continue in that way as well. That's what the book of Galatians is very much about. You began in the Spirit? Why are you trying to go on with human effort? And yet, you are a letter being read. So as others have pointed out, what's the message that people are reading as they look at your life? Some of you have heard me before back in high school when I became a follower of Christ at the age of 16-ish, 17-ish. Can't remember the exact thing happening there in terms of years. But I do remember quite clearly that I was very serious about my faith. I experienced a change heart. Not, not because I was doing things that, that other people would externally say are bad but I just didn't know God. And when I heard the gospel, something happened to me. I want that. I want to know this God who created me. I want to walk in his ways. I want to give my life for that. And I was changed radically. And so there was a, a real movement of God in our community. I was living overseas in high schoolers. But as is the case, maybe sometimes a lot of them just got caught up in the movement rather than with Christ himself. So big youth group, Big other activities, everyone coming around, and some people saying, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian. And then uh, some of them would go on weekends and do things that don't appear to line up with what you would say are Christian things to be doing, right? I mean, some, some things that... And unfortunately, other people were taking notes. And as you may have heard, there was an underground popul- a publication called the Anti-Anti-Anti-Christians that would publish acts of people who said they were Christians that they had observed over the weekend. Can you imagine in our social media era what the anti-anti-anti-Christians would have done with all that stuff? And frankly, when I, when I you know, in- encountered that too, I could appreciate their concern. You say you're one thing, but you live a completely different life. And they were kind of taking on the role of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to show everybody what you're really like it wasn't anything I'd recommend (laughs) but it sure did make those people whose names were listed it kind of shamed them and it called them out and those of us maybe who were concerned about that because we didn't know saying but we we really do know that Christ changed lives It it was hard they were a letter being read and their lives were saying one thing or another Christ is real or he's not you do have a changed heart or you don't. And again, it doesn't mean that as people are struggling and wrestling with, you know, putting to death the, the, the things from the, from the past, the response by these people may be enabled. If they really understood the gospel, may have been different than what came out. Repentance would have been appropriate. Weeping would have been appropriate. Sadness and reliance, deeper reliance on the Holy Spirit. I don't know what that means for you. I mean, your life as a letter, you all live it with families, extended family members in communities. You have a job. And if somebody knows that you're wearing that label, what is it saying? A very practical reality for Paul is your life as a letter being read. But another one is that our sufficiency, and he uses the word competence here, they're interchangeable, comes from God, not from ourselves our sense of worth and our sense of value and our sense of purpose have to be anchored in God, not in ourselves. And there's, you know, there are phrases today like, you are enough, that you hear a lot. That's great, that's inspiring. But at the end of the day, that's actually not a biblical notion. You will never be enough, because you can't measure up to your own standards or others, but Christ can. So your sufficiency has to be anchored in the one who's truly self-sufficient. God. That's why I love this Trinitarian image. The beautiful picture of the, the, the reliance on, on each, from all eternity and perfect sweet fellowship. That's the ground of our own sufficiency. Paul realizes he cannot, he's not up to the task. He's not competent to do what God's called him to do. But he's not concerned about that because he's anchored to the one who is. His sufficiency, his competence comes from God. Not from his own skill set. You see that even back in the Old Testament with Moses, who's called to do this crazy thing. And he says, I'm not competent. And, and God doesn't, you know, he says, well, you, you're probably not. But I am. And I have called you to do something. And I'll be there with you through this. So I'm not competent to be a parent. Duh. <laughs> Whatever it is. But God is He's, Paul is saying you have to, you have to find your, your sufficiency in God and it comes from him. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again in verse 3 or do we need letters of recommendation? You're our letters. You show you're a letter from Christ written on human hearts. Not that we are in verse 5 competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence from, comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of the New Covenant. That takes a lot of pressure off of you. It should. But it also means that you should ground yourself and your value, your purpose in life in God who says, you're made in my image. That is very important to understand. You have inherent value. And when you've been redeemed by him too, then you're a daughter or a son of God. Nothing can take that away. And no matter how many messages come externally from, you are enough, you have to tell yourself that over and over to believe it. The the reality is, in Christ, you're enough. And if you anchor yourself in anything other than that, the first time you fail, you'll start doubting whether you're enough again. Mm -hmm. See, that leads to death. It may not be the most extreme version, but there's a dying that happens in that. And the Spirit came to give you life, as we'll see in the weeks ahead. It's quite full and quite beautiful And then the last thing that I would say this morning is there's always hope for change. Life-giving change comes from God, making our hearts new. And Paul from the beginning said, if you feel like you have the sentence of death in yourself or you look around and you think that person cannot possibly be changed, God's in the business of taking those people who cannot possibly be changed and changing them. And Paul himself said, that was me. And if you're a follower of Christ, don't you know that was you also? So don't ever lose hope for change, whether it's in your own life, in the things you can't control, or in the lives of others as well. That's a very practical reality. If Christ is a true author, there is always a reason for hope, even when it seems darkest. We sing Psalm 23. In the valley of the shadow of death, he's with you. He can do something there. He has done something. And so that's the ground of our hope as well. Christ is the author of change. Now that reality is worked out in space and time, in our own lives. And so when we talk about stories of grace, um, we'll do that this week and next week to give a little more time uh, as well since it's five Sundays. Uh, I want to invite you then to share how you've seen Dad at work in this kind of way in, in change because we talk about declaring his work in the assembly and that's so that we can see and hear from each other. He's still at work. Sometimes we can't see it and it kind of comes and goes. but you have an opportunity to share this morning uh, some of how you've seen that. So be audible, which I would recommend is come and speak in front of the microphone, but if you just can't do that, then stay where you are and just speak as loud as possible. Um, in other words, if you would share, if you didn't have to come up front, then go ahead and share, but we would love to have you come up front and be brief, um, to the and Christ centered as, as well. So for some of you, this may be new, but for many, this is a, a common practice we do once a month. So if you have a story of grace, as we call it, more grace for the journey too, the floor is open for you to share.